Amen. All right. Well, welcome everybody. Um, my name's Brad. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's good to have you here tonight. If you can't see this um, board, you may want to move, or you guys are, you know, whatever. If you can see it, not see it, you might want to move. We're going to draw some stuff on the board, some illustrations to help you. Um, all right. Well, this is our third week of the Midweek Fellowship, Tough Questions, and tonight we're going to be dealing with what I think is probably the question that in my um, years of pastoral ministry is the one that in different forms is the one that I think I've probably wrestled with personally and as a pastor the most and have been asked the most about what is God's will for our lives and how can we discern God's will for our lives and and essentially the question is, how does God guide his people? And so we're going to look at that question today. But before we do, let me give away a few good resources. Um, this is a, cla- let me do this one first. This is a classic of Christian literature written by a, a British theologian who's in his 90s now. He's kind of like the godfather um, of our little stream of Christianity. Um, and his name is J.I. Packer written many books. If he's written something, you can, you can um, trust it. And he wrote a classic called Knowing God, which is uh, just really a, a comprehensive view, just really spanning the theological spectrum of ways Christians can know God better. But in particular, chapter 20 is a sort of zeroes down in on the question that we're going to wrestle with tonight about how God leads us, how God guides us. So we sell this in the resource centers. Anybody want it? We, John Fott, Colonel Fott. I mean, he, he's the, the highest ranking person in the room today. We just get a position of attention, and uh, that's right. I'm not not in the army anymore, so I'm I'm a civilian. <laughs> you know, you, you can't lock me up. All right. Um, the uh, the next book, which is smaller. Um, and a really uh, a very just understandable, really just really helpful book by uh, a young pastor up in um, Michigan. I think I might have given a book away or referenced him recently. Uh, his name is Kevin DeYoung. I, this was Sunday night, and I remember meeting I gave this book away. He wrote a book uh, on this very idea of how Christians can find and wrestle with finding God's will. It's a short little book, very helpful. And it is called Just Do Something, A Liberating Approach to Finding God's Will. But let me read you the subtitle. I love it. I see you over there. Just Do Something. Somebody's got their trigger hand ready. Just Do Something, A Liberating Approach to Finding God's Will, or How to Make a Decision Without Dreams, Visions, Fleeces, Impressions, Open Doors, Random Bible Verses, Casting Lots, Liver Shivers, and Writing in the Sky, etc. <laughs> Cheryl, Fancellus, and Laura. Did Cheryl... Cheryl Okay, you guys can share it. Okay, there you go. You guys are, yeah. Here you go. Thanks, Andrew. Appreciate it. There's one in there, Laura, if you want to, if she won't share with you. And then um, I've made copies. I found a PDF online of that chapter 20 in that um, book that John got there, Knowing God, the specific chapter 20, which is entitled How God Guides. I mean, that's what we're doing. That's what we're thinking about tonight. This is a, online. I made about 25 copies of this. I'll leave them up here. If you're interested in getting that, you can do that. Get that. And if you, um, if we run out or whatever, and you want, I can email you a PDF copy of that, okay? All right, well, let me pray and ask the Lord to help us as we get into this really important question. 
Oh Lord, we know that you are good and you are not only our great and omnipotent and eternal and all-knowing creator as we've been thinking about in Genesis, but you are also our good and gracious Father. And uh, you have adopted us through Jesus Christ. You have caused us to go from death to life by giving us the very thing that you required of us, which is faith and repentance, so that we could turn away from ourselves and turn in faith to Jesus. And you, by your sovereign power, have made us alive. And now you've adopted us into your family. And you, Lord, for those that are trusting in you, guide them as Father. And you put your spirit in us, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. And just as children need direction from their earthly father, we, God, need in in a much grander way direction from our heavenly father. Would you help uh, bring wisdom to us tonight? And uh, Lord, would would you encourage us? The world seems like a random and big and arbitrary and often a capricious and evil place. And we, we, as your people, need to know that you are, are there and hearing our prayers and guiding us. So would you help us think on these things biblically and faithfully in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you didn't get a handout, we'd love for you to get one in the back. Anybody not get one? Maybe, maybe Paul can get you. Anybody not get one? You can hop up and get it. All right. Anybody? Anybody? Jacob Evangelista? All right, there you go. All right, well, as we engage this question, let me just give you a little background of where I come from on this. Uh, March 16th, that's a week and a half from now, not this Sunday, but the next. March 16th, 1989, I was a senior in high school in El Centro, California, that thriving metropolis of northern Mexico. And I, uh, my brother had been away at college and had become a Christian, where he was playing football at Northern Arizona University told you this story before, but he brought home with him several of his friends from his football team, and they witnessed to me, Uh, and it was the first time, I think, that I'd ever really heard the gospel, even though I grew up in a a mainline, very liberal, no gospel-having church. um, I I think for the first time I heard at least the seeds of the gospel. It was a pretty man-centered approach to the gospel, but my brother and his uh, huge offensive lineman friends told me that I was a sinner and that God was holy and that I needed to turn away from my sin and trust in Christ. Uh, and so then they went back to college. I just kind of stood there scared in my parents' den and um, didn't know what to do with that confrontation. The next day, my brother's girlfriend, who's now my sister-in-law, uh, took me to a crusade at my high school gymnasium, and that was on March 16th. That was Saturday, March 16th, 1989. And again, I think in kind of a man-centered way, uh, maybe not the best biblical theology in that sermon, but certainly certainly faithful, uh, certainly uh, preaching against sin and talking about the need for trusting in Christ alone. I think I heard the gospel for the first time. Whether or not I truly believed in that moment, I don't know, but I know that that was the beginning of my uh, salvation process, whether I was regenerated at that moment or not. I don't know. And I was a bit suspicious. I grew up playing ball, you know, so, you know, playing baseball, you can't touch the, you know, the foul line. And I had all these little, these little, uh, these little 
things that I'd do in football. I had to put the tape on just right. And so that night I got home after hearing the gospel for the first time, and I opened up and I said, well, I, I need to start reading the Bible, and so I'm going to play Bible roulette and find kind of what God's will is for me in this moment. I think I wasn't necessarily articulating that, but that was sort of the question sort of latent in my heart. So I figured, well, Matthew would be a good place to start. I had never read the Bible before up to that point. I mean, I'd had a Bible. In fact, superstitiously, I used to sleep with it underneath my pillow, thinking that sort of some strange spiritual osmosis would happen when I was a kid, but I never actually opened it up, which, by the way, that doesn't work, if any of you were wondering. And so I said, well, Matthew would be a good place to start. It's the first book in the New Testament. And I thought, and this was my reasoning, my number in football was 10, and my brother's number in football when he was in college was 39. And so I figured Matthew 10, 39 is clearly the verse that the Lord is speaking to me to read. And so I opened up my Bible, and this is what Matthew 10, 39 says. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now, God in his kind providence used my Bible roulette to really drive me to a, a, a wonderful verse to read for the very first verse that you read in the Bible. Well, you'd think that I had matured. I became a Christian, I think, sometime, went away to college in New York, was discipled by a pastor, probably sometime there when I was in college at the military academy. I think I probably truly became a Christian, grew a lot in the Lord, was discipled. Going back up to New York after leave, after graduation, to pick up my car and drive down the eastern seaboard to come to Fort Benning, Georgia, where I had to report as a young lieutenant, I was thinking, the Lord clearly has a southern bell in my future. I think I'm going to be, you know. So what I'm doing is I'm looking at all the billboards, thinking, you know, maybe I could you know, look at the first letter on the left column, and maybe the Lord will spell out the name of the girl that I will meet. I mean, just, I mean, honestly, you know, I'm, these are the types of things that are running through my mind. I get to Columbus late in the evening, and it was too late to check into, you know, anything at Fort Benning, and so I stayed at a hotel off of Manchester Expressway right there, that little Motel 6 or whatever, and I thought, surely the Lord, I think, is going to lead me to find a Southern Bell, and, and I think he's going to do it in a church. And so it was too dark. I didn't know where I was. The next morning, I woke up on a Sunday morning, and right across the street from that hotel was a church. And I thought, ah, Lord, you are directly guiding me. This is like the, you know, the pillar of fire and the cloud and Old Testament Israel. And I, I got ready to go and went to that church. And um, it was one of those churches that I don't know that there was anybody under the age of maybe 75 or 80, and I'm not exaggerating. It, I'm not being mean, but it kind of, you know, some churches have that sort of that smell, you know. And there was about 15 or 20 people in that church. Let's just go out on a limb and say none of the women in that church were eligible bachelorettes or anywhere near my generation. But they all swarmed me because I was like the first new person that maybe had ever darkened the door of the church. And so um, I, I left there and and the next weekend I visited Evangel Temple, which is where Jennifer was, and clearly the Lord spoke. But anyway, you know, it's those types of kind of goofy, silly, immature ways that really, really have marked a lot of my life of trying to discover God's will. But what does the Bible say? Well, let's go to Roman numeral number one, foundational truths. I'm going to fly through some of this, and we really want to settle down on the back page, um, Roman numeral number two. The foundational 
truths, three things I want us to orient ourselves. Number one, letter A there, is that God has a plan, is all-powerful, and in complete control of the future. So we've got to hammer that home, okay? Now, if you don't, if you haven't heard, if you've been coming to Crosspoint and you have not heard this, you have not been listening, okay? It's on you, sweetheart. It's on you. Like, this is something that we talk a lot about, okay? So God is sovereign, and he has a plan. It's all-powerful, and he is in complete control of the future. Isaiah 46, remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. God is speaking to Israel in this situation, speaking about their idols, but this has eternal um, application. God knows the beginning from the end. Daniel, I love this because it's spoken by a pagan ruler, Nebuchadnezzar. So even he gets the sovereign power of God. Uh, Daniel chapter 4, verse 34. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand, meaning nothing can hold him back. Nothing can stop or thwart his hand or say to him, what have you done? So God is clearly in control. Proverbs 16, a wonderful chapter in Proverbs about the sovereignty and providence of God. It says in Proverbs 16, verse 4, the Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. And then the last verse of Proverbs 33, of Proverbs 16, verse 33, it's, it's zeroing down in on even things that seem random to us, like the rolling of dice or the casting of lots. Even the Lord superintends that. The proverb says, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. And then Ephesians 1, uh, verse 11 uh, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, notice this last part, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So God, in a universal sense, controls all things, superintends all things, is outside of time, knows the beginning from the end, has planned it, and is not just planning it, but is personally involved in it and is involved in our lives. So he's not just like the, uh, the watchmaker who's wound up the gears of the watch and just sort of stands back and just says, okay, well, gosh, things are going bad. No, he's, he's transcendent, but he's also imminent. He is in our lives and in his creation. Psalm 139, a beautiful, a beautiful psalm to be encouraged by. Uh, David writes this, O Lord, you have searched me and know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. 
You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. And then skip in that same Psalm 2 verse 16, this beautiful, beautiful truth, just just reminding us that God knows all of our days. Verse 16, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. I mean, think about just the implications. We just to, that's a sweet meditation. Just to think about the implications of that truth that God knows our days. He knows the beginning and he knows the end, right? And he's, he's written them all in his book. And so like, he, nothing in our lives sneaks up on God. That, that's a wonderful, wonderfully comforting thought. And then Romans 8.28, maybe one of the most famous Bible books in, uh, verses in the Bible. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So this is not a general universal promise to all people. This, is, this applies to those who have turned from their sin and are trusting in Jesus' finished work on the cross. God promises to superintend everything in their life according to his plan. And then Matthew 10, 29 and 30 speaks about Jesus. God says that God knows the, the very number of hairs on our head, and he knows that when birds fall to the ground. Again, just a wonderful, a wonderful verse to meditate on, the personal, sovereign power of God in our lives. So letter number A there, foundational truth is God has a plan. He's sovereign. Secondly, God communicates, and he communicates sufficiently. Now, I know that word may bother you like, no, my God's more than sufficient. No, I, 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 I know. I get you. I'm with you. But what I mean by that is that his word is enough for us, right? It's, it's enough. We don't need other things. God's word is enough. So 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14, but it's for you, continue what you've learned and firmly believe. This is Paul writing to a younger pastor named Timothy, uh, knowing from whom you've learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. And then even zeroing down in on that, that notion just a little bit more, Second Peter chapter 1, verse 3, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. I'm reading from the ESV, but I think the NIV says, uh, renders this, he, he's given us everything we need. I, I think that's, that's a helpful way to think of it. He has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of his sinful desire. And so those very great promises are not just some sort of abstract, you know, dandelions from God floating around in the breeze. The context of chapter 1 there, if we were to read on at the end, is the, the written word of God, the word of the prophets, and now the word of the apostles in the New Testament. So he has given us his word, he communicates to us, and it is sufficient for us. God's communication is enough. It's all we need. But it's also good for us to know that he hasn't communicated with us exhaustively. And this frustrates us as Americans because we want to know everything, don't we? Because we have Google, right? <laughs> I mean, we've got Wikipedia. And sometimes we treat God like, you know, we type in some search term and we're frustrated with him when he doesn't act like Wikipedia. Well, 
the Bible says in, in Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29, a really important verse. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. So there's, there's really there, you see kind of a, uh, a separation of knowledge there. There's things that God knows that he's just not going to reveal to us now. And then there's things that we are given to know. And then Romans 11, 33 through 36 probably my favorite verse in the Bible, uh, right now anyway. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. So God not only has a plan and he's sovereign over it, he knows the future and is in complete, he doesn't just know the future, but he's in complete control of it. He also is a God that communicates, he speaks to us. And then thirdly, which is what we're going to settle down in tonight, is that God also calls his people clearly to discern his will. So Colossians chapter 1, Paul prays for the church at Colossae in chapter 1 verse 9, and so from the day we heard We have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So clearly, Paul is praying for them to wrestle with, to think about, to to try and learn and understand and appropriate this notion of God's will for their lives. And then, I think probably the most well-known verse on this particular topic is Romans chapter 12, uh, verses 1 and 2, and this is what Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So clearly, God knows everything, God communicates sufficiently, but then there's this thing, this idea called the will of God that we are called in this sufficient scripture to figure out, to wrestle with, to know. I think I'm telling you, I'm just laying some groundwork. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. Any, any questions before we move on? I don't think there may be any questions at this point, but if there are, I don't want to... Okay. So let's get into point number two. The two wills of God. This is where we need to kind of think deeply, okay? The Bible categorizes God's will in two ways, two overarching ways. One is God's sovereign will, which we, I think, have have talked about primarily in in letter A there in Roman numeral one, foundational truths. God is all-powerful and brings All his purposes to pass. This is important for you to see and understand this aspect of God's will. His sovereign will cannot be thwarted or frustrated. And there are times in the Bible when clearly when the phrase, the will of God or the idea of God's activity or or willing is brought up, even if it's not the phrase will of God, And it's important for you to know that the Bible often has this category in mind of God's sovereign, unstoppable, unfrustratable will. That's his sovereign will. The Bible also 
speaks about God's will in places, many places, as his moral will. This is often referred to as God's will of command. It includes like the imperatives of Scripture, like the Ten Commandments, and the imperative passages that we see all throughout the, uh, the New Testament that speak directly to our behavior and actions and attitudes. So in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, for example, it says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. So clearly we know that is God's revealed moral will for us that we don't do those things, right? That we, that we put those things to, to death. And then if you're just the type of person that just needs the phrase, the will of God in there, okay, well, I'll give you that. First Thessalonians chapter 4. Finally then, brothers, well, verse 3, there it is. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. So, so there are times when the will of God is spoken of very directly in the terms of God's command about our behavior, actions, and attitudes, and that's God's moral will to be distinguished from God's sovereign, unstoppable will. Because we, we so, so do you see the distinction already? God is sovereign. There's things that, like remember what Nebuchadnezzar said, nothing can thwart his hand? But you know that list of stuff I read out of Colossians 3? I've done some of that. <laughs> Actually, maybe all of it. And the stuff that I haven't actually done, I've thought about, and, and God says even that's sin, right? So in that sense, I have thwarted God's moral will, and we all, to some degree, thwart his moral will all the time. But yet, there's this sovereign will that is unstoppable, irresistible, unthwartable. I don't know if that's a word, but it sounds good. And then there's his moral will, which is his moral command about our behavior and actions that we do break. So... Let's look now at some examples of how these two wills often seem to collide in Scripture, okay? Pharaoh, we see in Exodus that God commands Pharaoh to let his people go, that's his moral will, but hardens his heart so that he cannot fulfill, he cannot do it and thus fulfill God's purpose for him, which is to, 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 for Moses to wrestle God's people away. That's God's sovereign will. So in Exodus 4, 21, the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I've put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Exodus 7, 1 through 4, and the Lord said to Moses, see, I've made you like God to Pharaoh and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of this land. God's command will of command or moral command, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my sins and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you, God's sovereign will. So do you see, doesn't that, that kind of stretch your brain a little bit? God has a moral will, let my people go, Pharaoh. God has a sovereign will, I'll, behind the scene I'll harden his heart so that he can't actually do the thing I've commanded him to do. We see these two will seemingly collide in the suffering of Christians. The persecution of Christians is clearly a sin. It would be part of God's moral will. But God has willed that it comes to pass. That's his sovereign one. We see that. That's one of the major arguments of the letter of 1 Peter that we went through back in the fall. 1 Peter 3.17. It is better to suffer for doing good 
if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So God sovereignly superintends sometimes to use the breaking of his moral will for the, suff- for the refining of his people. And then the most important and, and uh, it, it really the, the biggest example of how we see these two wills seemingly collide is in the cross of Christ, where God clearly commands that murder is a sin, that's his moral will, but brings about the murder of Jesus to fulfill his eternal plan. That's his sovereign will. So Acts 2, 23, Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost there, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And then in Acts 4, 27 and 28, for truly in this city were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and plan had predestined to take place. So again, we see God's moral command, don't kill. And then we see him bringing about the most egregious and sinful murder of all time in Jesus' death on the cross. Now, all this is background to get us to what I think you're really here for. Is to Okay, what about me, though? Okay, but why is seeing this so important? It helps us make sense out of a broken world that often seems out of control and random. Does God hate evil and tragedy? Yes, we can clearly say that. So all of us that love the sovereign will of God, all of us that love you know, the, the, the deep caverns of good reformed theology, right? and we love to think about God in the 30,000 foot level, that's wonderful. And we feel like we get nervous when we, when we actually you know, stand on promises about God hating evil. Like, oh, well, you know, we, we feel like we need to be... You know, too, too sort of overarching all the time. I think it, it reali- it, this blending these two truths together makes us realize that yes, we can and should and know that God hates evil and tragedy. Yes. But is it random and out of his control? No. Somehow, in ways that we do not yet fully understand, he uses the breaking of his moral will to bring about his sovereign will for our ultimate, eternal good and his glory. So let me, let me kind of give you a, an illustration of how I, how I just kind of think about this. This is, didn't read this anywhere. It's not in a book. It's probably goofy, but this is just the way I think about it. I think about God's sovereign will is like the floor. It's the foundation. Like I can't, like it's what we stand on. It's the ground. Underneath it is, you know, we we can't see all that's underneath it, but it's holding us up. This is God's sovereign will. I'm sorry that my backside is right in your face. And then on the foundation of his sovereign will, we build our lives, put the pillars of his moral will, right? This is his moral will, his commands. And when we obey them, and when we put our lives underneath their authority, it does protect us, certainly, right? From, from uh, just the schemes of the enemy, not necessarily, doesn't mean that if we obey God, that I'm not preaching the prosperity gospel, I'm just saying it protects us. It, we, we, it, it's helpful, certainly. There's great benefit in following God's commands. And so we're in here, right? Right? We're in here. That's us. Okay, a little haircut. 
But see, there are times when God in his providence, sometimes, well, before I make any qualifications, there are times when, you know, a meteor hits and busts a hole through the roof and absolutely turns your world upside down. And it's in those moments when we need to realize that God's sovereign will is, is stronger and upholding and underneath even the breaking of his moral will. And none of this, nothing that comes at us from the outside, even our own sin that at times busts through the protection of God's moral will, even our own sin and the sin that happens to us, none of that can thwart God's ultimate sovereign will. See, to see how those two things kind of, kind of go together. Now, friends, is there, is, there, is, there, is there a limit to our ability to explain the intersection of these two things? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are there a thousand scenarios where we can say, well, what about this? What about this? What about this? Yeah, yeah. But somehow, remember those verses we read in Romans 8, Ephesians 1, God is working out all things for the good of his people and for our for his glory. So, any questions before we zero in on, on number three? Any questions at all? Yeah, Jay. I think uh, one of the natural things that, I don't know if I'm the only one who thought this or not. Maybe I am. Um, one of the things that you kind of imply with God's will, when you talked about Pharaoh, he can't follow God's moral will. Can you talk about the relationship between his responsibility still being upheld for his actions, even though God's willing that he not do those things? And what does that mean for us when we break a command? Yeah, I, well, I mean, that's a great question. Um, I think that, again, there's, there's a limit to our ability to understand that. Um, you know, God holds us culpable. I think of in the New Testament, you know, where... where um, where it, it clearly we see just God, we, we, see, we see repentance and faith as a gift. We're completely dependent on God to give it to us. But then we see Jesus mourning over Jerusalem, and he's saying, would that you would come to me, but you would not. And so, yeah, God, uh, and, and this is where we need to, you know, Romans 3, stop our mouth and be silent. How, what right does the clay have to say to the potter? Why have you made me thus? Just seems these are clear instances in Scripture where God commands one thing. Humans are responsible. But especially in the situation of, of Pharaoh, it, it shows his, his ability to exercise his sovereign will over that. And I, Jay, you've hit on a really important question. And I, I, I think that we could take a long time delving into it. Um, so I, I wanted to say that there's limits to our ability to understand that. But God is just in whatever he commands. Abraham says, you know, when he's pleading with God about Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 17, I think it is. And he, you know, eventually he just kind of reasons, will, will not the judge of all the earth do right? God is just and good. And we are responsible. So that nobody can stand before him someday and say, I, 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 you know, what, I didn't, I didn't, whatever. And that kind of gets back to the question of week number one, you know, of, the, of those that have never heard. 
you know, all of us are, are, are held accountable. Yeah, those two things are tough to put together. Um, good question. Yeah, David. Um, there's some verses that, you know, and I don't know specifically because it, just because it says the will of God. Yeah. But it, when it says God is not willing that any should perish, mm-hmm. but that all should come to repentance. Can you kind of elaborate on that where yep. it seems like God can't even accomplish his own will yep. if we just look at that? Yep. Out of context. I think that's a perfect example. Well, there's two, th- two ways that we could look at that verse. So 2 Peter, chap- um, uh, Peter chapter 3, in verse 9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises. Some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Okay. There's, a, I think, a pretty strong exegetical argument that we could make there, that the all that Peter is referring to is all of the people that he's writing to, you know, as, as Christians. And so there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a, a, a good argument that we can make about that, but I'll set that aside. I think another good argument that we can make about the word all is that when the Bible uses the word all, it's not saying all without exception. It's saying that all without distinction. So in other words, especially Peter and Paul, and you see Paul say the same thing in 1 Peter 2 when he's talking about um, you know, God's will about all people being saved. He's talking about all kinds of people in that situation, the Jew, the Greek, the king, the peasant. You know. So I think we can make a, a good argument about that too. But I'll even, I think, and I think both of those are sound biblical exegetical arguments. Just for the sake of argument, I'll leave those two aside, even though I think that they're good arguments and I, I would stand on them that verse kind of zeroes down into the very thing that we're getting. There is, okay, there is, God has willed that all come to the knowledge of truth, none perish, God's moral will. But not all are. And so there must be something that God wills greater than all to be saved. You see that? So, there's, so this is his moral will. God commands all to, be, to, 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 to not perish, but it doesn't happen. So that tells me that there's, a, there's something under the surface that God wills greater than that all should perish. And people have wrestled with that in two ways. The Reformed camp, which we fall into, we, we believe, and you don't have to believe this, by the way, that there's something that God wills greater than his moral command, and that is his sovereign glory in election and in the purpose of his grace. And the other people that would disagree with that in the Armenian camp would think that, well, the thing that God wills most in that situation is upholding the freedom of the will of a person, which I don't think is even a biblical idea. But you see, either way, regardless of what you think about predestination or election or God's choosing, you have to concede that God is willing something greater than his public will that, all, that none perish. He's willing either that in eternity past... He has set a saving love on his people and is bringing it to pass through their willing response and preaching of the gospel. I think that's the biblical answer. Or he's willing that his command doesn't override their sort of ability to decide. Either way, God is willing something greater than what he's publicly saying. And I think that verse sort of zeroes right down into this this mixture of these two wills. God's sovereign will, which is unknown to us 
and God's moral will, which is his command. And I think it's actually related to Jay's question because he's commanding everybody, repent and believe. And nobody can say, well, I mean, no, we're all guilty because of God's moral will that we turn from our sin. Great question. There's much more we could say about that. Did I kind of answer that? Yeah, awesome. Any other questions? Jay, yeah. Yeah, no, go ahead, go ahead. We'll, yeah, we'll do Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, would, I think that's okay to say, and I think it's true. Yeah. No, because the, 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 so the question is, God desires all to be saved, but he desires his glory more. Um, boy, we could, we could go off into that. That's a wonderful question. I don't think that's wrong to say. I think that's biblical, and I think that God's, the, 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 the maximum display of God's glory is the most pleasurable and good thing that he can do for the universe. Um, uh, but here's, here's, listen, I mean, you guys know where I stand on these issues. I, I believe in the utter sovereignty of God, but I also believe like Spurgeon, I believe that, you know, God's people don't wear, you know, little yellow coattails to whom he's predestined from. So I, I believe in the utter foreknowledge and election of God in his sovereign will, but yet that's God's business, not mine. So we, we preach the gospel to all people and all people must make a real decision to repent and trust in Christ, or reject him, and be separated for forever. And those that reject will stand before God someday and have no excuse but their own hardened hearts. And yeah, how do those two things fit together? Challenging, challenging. Okay, let's keep going, because I want to get into the question that we really want to wrestle with tonight. How then, okay, God's got a sovereign will, a moral will, he's good, he knows the future. How does he guide his people? Quickly, four ways God leads his people. This is adapted from an article and sermon by John Piper. Maybe you've heard of him. He's a pastor in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Not, actually, not anymore. Retired. Um, four ways. I'll start with a D. Jay Hearn will love this. This is alliterated. Starts with the same letter. And I didn't come up with a J. Yeah, he's a Baptist. <laughs> God's will of decree. God sovereignly decrees and designs circumstances so that we end up where he wants, even if we don't have any conscious part in getting there. That's God's sovereign will. We just spent some time talking about that. There's an example of Paul in, in jail and, you know, being put in a place where God wants him to in Acts 16. Won't take the time to read it. Then there's God's will of direction, how he, how his, his leading by direction. This is what God does for us by giving us the commands and teachings of the Bible. They direct us specifically what to do and what not to do. So we do not have to ask whether we can marry a non-Christian, listen to me, young person, I don't care if he's cute or if his hair shines in the sun or if he prays before he eats. If he's not a Christian, you should not and cannot marry him. Can I get an amen? All right, thank you. It doesn't mean that you cannot file your taxes, even if you don't like that president. And it doesn't mean that because you really love each other that you can have sex outside of marriage or before marriage or do anything else that is clearly prohibited in the Bible. So we don't, there's lots that we don't have to pray about in discerning God's will, right? Yeah. The clear implication is that we must know our scriptures and seek to continually know them better. And this is where many Americans fall down. Come on, let's just be honest, all right? Let's just be honest. We don't, we spend more time browsing 
the internet, watching TV, and on Facebook than we do trying to discover the revealed will of God for our lives. And that's crickets chirping right there because it's true, right? So God directs his people. Then God gives us, the way he leads us is through discernment. Many decisions we make are not spelled out specifically in the Bible. Discernment is how we follow God's leading through the process of spiritually sensitive application of biblical truth to the particularities of our situation. This, I think, is what, where they're kind of the rubber meets the road on the question. More on this in just a moment. And then there's a fourth way that God leads his people, which is through declaration. Examples of this are angels commanding Joseph and Mary in Matthew 2 and Philip in Acts 8. Okay, I should have bolded this and underlined it. This is the least common and seems to be limited to God's dealing with Israel in the Old Testament and key events and people in the redemptive story of the New Testament, such as the apostles. So I don't think God speaks this way anymore, right? Uh, it should not be expected in our time. I'm not going to say God can't do anything, but God is, 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 doesn't seem to, since the closing of the canon, the Bible, be speaking in this sort of direct angels appearing sort of a could, but it's the, by far the least common and should not be expected in our time. Okay. So then, what we really need to concentrate is on numbers two and three. Knowing our Bible better and then discerning the many decisions that are not necessarily spelled out specifically in the Bible. So let's look at a closer look at how discern, at discernment and making decisions. Know our Bible clearly. This involves more than just knowing the commands of the Bible. Right? And this is, again, where when I'm talking about knowing the Bible, I'm not talking about sort of cherry-picking, like, devotional reading. You know, that just, like, we know sort of verses, like, we've got our favorite little group of verses, and that's kind of all we know. And, and then we, you know, we, we, we pull them out of the Scriptures, you know? Like, the story, like a perfect example is, you know, of, of, like, the story of Jesus feeding the multitudes in John 6, and the way sometimes we commonly sort of apply that to our lives, well, I know that story. And the, the point of that story is, is that, you know, you should, no matter what you have, no matter how meager your resources or gifts are, you just bring them to Jesus, and he'll multiply it. <laughs> no, no, the, act, the point of the story is that Jesus is the bread of life, and he's the only one that can truly satisfy, Right? How do we do it? We do it in the Old Testament, too. We, we talked about it, Cain and Abel. The, the, the moral of the story of Cain and Abel, not, Cain was bad, Abel was good. Johnny, be like Abel. No, the moral of the story is, is, that, is that we're all like Cain. Abel's like a pre-shattering of Jesus. We killed him, and now sin is too much for us to bear. We need a Savior. Another huge one, we do these little kind of misapplications of cute little little stories that we've just sort of totally twisted is David and Goliath. Johnny, when you're scared, have courage and face your giants like David, right? And, you know, whatever. No, that's not the point of the story. The point of the story is we're like Israel with our tail between our legs, scared of the giant in the wood line with our teeth chattering. And David is, is a pre-shadow of Christ who comes to slay the giant that we can't slay. 
One more that we do all the time. Be like Moses, Johnny. Moses, he was afraid to get up in front of class too. He stuttered and had a speech impediment. But if you really reach down inside, you can have courage too and be courageous like Moses and stick your staff in the ground and take a stand for God. No, Johnny. You're not like Moses. You are like Egypt in captivity. You're a slave to sin, just like Israel is a slave to Egypt. And Moses is a pre-shadow of Christ who comes to set God's people free. So we need to know the Bible, not just little, you know, hip pocket little phrases, you know. We need to know the theology of the Bible and the character of the Bible. And friends, that's a lifelong, that's a lifelong pursuit. That's why you need to be part of a local church that's preaching the gospel. That's why you need to prioritize gathered worship. That's why you need to be in the word by your, by, on your own and in community with other Christians that can help help you interpret the word. Thirdly, or secondly, we need to pray clearly. Ironically, we often talk about wanting God's guidance more than we actually ask for it. As Americans, we're particularly prone to short-circuit waiting on God in prayer, aren't we? In fact, even, I think probably, I mean, just maybe, maybe if you're honest, just my little list here of five points about how we actually discern God's will, maybe it's a little disappointing to you. Ah, oh, man, shoot. I was hoping there'd be something a little bit more like awesome, or like cutting-edge revolutionary. Well, me too, kind of, you know? We just, we just kind of want something to be easy, don't we? Oh, so the answer is, like, know my Bible better, pray, and be in community with other Christians? Yeah. Yeah. So it's like the answer to most things in the Christian life. We need to pray. We don't pray. Do our research. We should gather the facts about our choices and consider the costs. So there's this really cool story in Luke 14 about how Jesus says, hey, if somebody's going to build a tower, you know, they count the cost before they, they, they start the project. And so you can read Luke 14. So if we have different options, we need to think about what, the, the, do research about what the various choices that we have, um, what, what their different costs are and options are and what, what, what do the research. Seek wise counsel. God's ordinary way of dispensing wisdom is through community, through his people, through the church. He's given us his word and one another to help interpret and apply the, that word. You can read in Proverbs 12 and Proverbs 15 that in a multitude of counselors, there's wisdom and safety. And then finally, make a decision and rest in God's sovereignty. Realize that God has given us the freedom and responsibility to make real decisions, real choices and decisions. And oftentimes those decisions mean deciding between two multiple good options, neither of which would be or none of which would be sinful. But we must act, ultimately trusting that God works all things together for our good. So let me draw another picture for you. And then we'll conclude. I think of it this way. I think of, think of God's moral will. Now we're talking about his moral will. Think about that being a sphere underneath which we need to live and wrestle to obey. Okay? I mean, clearly, I can't do whatever I want with my money. Clearly, I can't do whatever I want sexually. You know, clearly, clearly there's things that are just commands that I don't even have to pray about. But it, within his moral will, there is another little more hard to discern sphere in here where there are decisions 
between two things that might be, you know, neither one of them is sinful. And this is in this area where I need what's, what's in God's will, where we have, we have responsibility and freedom. It's not to say that that freedom is detached from God's sovereignty in our lives, but we are free to make a decision as we walk through these five steps, seek to bring the Bible's principles and wisdom into that situation, as we pray, as we research the the, the facts about the varying options, as we seek wise counsel from other Christians who aren't just our age. So if you're a 22-year-old guy, don't just ask advice of all the other 22-year-old guys in your world that you know, don't have an alarm clock. Maybe ask a guy who's got a mortgage and a light bill and a kid and a wife. You know, ask his opinion. So get wise counsel and then make a decision. So it's in here where, where I think is kind of the, the crux where the rubber meets the road, which is where we do most of our sort of thinking about what is God's will. And so these are things like, who should I marry? Well, you know, is she a Christian? Is he a Christian? Yes or no? You know, it's like the little decision things. No, move on. Yes, okay. Is this the person? Get wise counsel from people in your life. You know, be in community. Have people know your relationship. And if there's people that you have given authority to speak in your life and are saying, no, I don't know if that's a wise decision. Hold on, I think you know something. Then you should... Just not proceed. It should be, give you great pause. Do you see the importance of being in biblical community and kind of knowing people and giving them authority in your lives? Another question may be, well, you know, taking a job. Should I move to Chicago to take this job or should I stay here in this job? Neither one of them, if I do either one of these, neither one of them would be a sin. But I think we sometimes just like we stagnate ourselves and we freeze ourselves by trying to find like the perfect will of God for our lives. And what it does is it sort of, it sort of freezes us into a kind of subconscious, self-absorbed fear that we're going to pick the wrong thing. It's kind of like God is like Bob Barker on The Price is Right and it's the showcase showdown. Behind door number one is something. And behind door number two is something, right? And I've got to figure out whether it's Chicago or Columbus. Both of them seem to be good to me, but one of them, I open the door and it's going to be like, ding, 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 yeah. Or one of them's going to be like, ah. Oh, gosh, it's a, you know, it's a lifetime supply of candy bars. Oh, great. I, I was hoping for the new car. And we sort of subconsciously approach it like there's this perfect will And the Trinity's up there sort of waiting like, oh gosh, pick door number two, pick door number two, and we pick door number one, Chicago. Oh gosh, what are we going to do now? He, He took the job in Chicago. Friends, that's just not the way it works. That's not the way, that's not the way it it works. So some pitfalls. Well, let me stop there. Anybody have any quick question, one or two, before we talk about some pitfalls? And I realize it's very unromantic that the answer to the question of how you find God's will is to, to be a good lay th- theologian, like know your Bible. And don't just know cute little phrases from the Lifeway book, devotional. Like know your Bible. Pray. Research your options. 
Seek wise counsel of people older than you. They've got some tread on their tires. And then make a decision and rest in God's sovereignty. Because remember, right? God's sovereign. And even if we go to Chicago and the roof caves in, He's sovereign. And He works all, thing to, all things together for our, for our good and His glory. So we should be able to rest in this. So it's not like God's surprised by Chicago. Right? He knew it. Any questions? All right, let me get to the pitfalls and then we'll be done. I think some pitfalls and faulty thinking is that God, this idea of God's perfect and permissive will. These popular phrases flatten and oversimplify God's will as two tracks that we jump on and off throughout life. I think it's more biblical to think of God's sovereign will and his moral will and the means he gives to guide us personally. Because think about, just think about, just run the logic through on this sort of, well, I'm in God's perfect will. Well, now I'm in God's permissive will. It kind of presents the sovereign creator of the universe as always like juggling like, oh, bad decision. Oh, now, now you, know, who, you know, Brad down in Columbus, Jesus, you know, the Trinity's like taking counsel with one another. Is he, which track is he on? Permissive? Oh, okay, we're going to be, we're going to permiss. Let's try and get him back over to the perfect will. And he's on the perfect will for a decade, back over to the permissive will. I mean, it's just, I mean, when we think about the, just when we play that through, it, it's just, Come on, it's not, and listen, I've said that before, I've used that phrase before, I'm not beating you up if you do, but I just, I think there's a much better, more biblical way to think about God's will. I think that's just kind of a quintessential sort of American pop culture idea, and I just don't think it's biblical. Another thing is we over-spiritualize God's guidance. I think I'm prone to this to some degree. I mean, I, look, I play Bible roulette, looking at billboards, driving down I-95. I still got a little bit of this in me. I'm a goofball at heart. I'm, I'm weird. Like, I'm goofy. I got a little bit of this weirdness in me. So if this is you, you know, don't be too discouraged. It's over-spiritualizing God's guidance. Guys, some are prone to be overly mystical in their pursuit of God's guidance and to look for signs and symbols rather than God's guidance through ordinary means of grace. Let me just pause here and say, uh, I think a, a good example of this, this kind of this over-mystification of God speaking to us, is that, and this, I, I realize this may be popular, some of you may have even benefited from this book, but just as a pastor that loves you, that wants to lead you into, I think, uh, health, I, just, I think I need to tell you that I think this is a, not a helpful book, and it's that book, Jesus Calling, by Sarah Young. I, I actually think that's a very unhelpful book. The reason why is that the author of this book has even stated, I, I copied the introduction there, she states in her introduction about this devotional, that I knew that God communicated with me through the Bible, but I yearned for more. Increasingly, I wanted to hear what God had to say to me personally on a given day. Well, friends, like right there, she just completely misunderstands the authority and sufficiency of the Bible. Is she well-intentioned? Yeah, yeah, I don't doubt that at all. Have some people read that book and benefited from it? Yes. Have maybe you read that book and benefited from it? I'm, I'm not doubting that at all. I'm just saying that the premises upon which she then reads and writes sort of first-person messages from Jesus, I think has a potentially very unhealthy trajectory. It, it, I think it misunderstands the inspiration of Scripture. If Jesus truly did author these things to us, then we need to make this the 67th book of the Bible. But, but that's clearly not the case. I think it undermines the sufficiency of the Bible. And I've actually read through this book because a lot of people have asked me about it. 
And um, the, the other thing is I don't think it represents a biblical view of God well. Are there lots of true things said in it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, even if they're from a first-person view, which I think is not helpful, but are there true sentiments in there? Yeah. But it's, it's all very sort of cozy and comfortable. It's all sort of, you know, it's a very soft view of Jesus. Jesus never commands. Jesus never says, repent. And Jesus, so I just think it's very, very unhelpful. I, think you should, I, I don't think you should read the book. If you've benefited from it, I'm not trying to undownload that information from you. I just, as your pastor, I love you. You can disagree with me. You know, one thing I've noticed about pastoral ministry is people love their pastor to be passionate about truth until they disagree with it. <laughs> yeah, I love the way you preach, but oh, but you don't like the book I read. Ah. Yeah, well, you know, kind of can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. And so, um, so that's number two, subconscious self-absorption. Oh, friends, this is me. This is me. And I'll be done here in just a second. We live in a narcissistic culture. This is a pitfall and faulty thinking that pushes us to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. Thus, we are prone to be stagnated by the fear of making a wrong decision, which is actually just a veiled form of pride because we want everything in our life to be awesome. Am I, am that, because God forbid we go to Chicago and it not work out. Because then we would have nothing to post on Facebook about how awesome our life is. Right? Come on, friends. Don't we just make more out of these 80 or 90 years than the Bible, in, than the Bible really points us to? Right? There, there should, we should recapture the joy of ordinariness and obscurity. Yeah. I, but I'm the, hey, if that's you, listen. I, that's me. That, I, I have to fight against that a lot. I am a self, I'm a subconscious, sometimes conscious, self-absorbed, narcissist. I'm starting a help group. You you guys can come. And then thirdly, fourthly, this faulty notion that God's will is the absence of conflict or trouble. First Peter destroys this faulty logic. J.R. Packer's words are helpful here when he says, God seeks the fellowship of his people and sends them both joy and sorrow to detach their hands from the things of this world and attach their hands to him. Likewise, C.H. Spurgeon, maybe you've heard of him, Baptist pastor back in the 1800s in London said, Jesus often rides to the doorstep of our hearts on the black horse of affliction to wean us from earth and woo us to heaven. Praise God. A couple resources, books, Just Do Something. Kevin DeYoung, I gave it out, Knowing God, uh, Jab Packer. Sinclair Ferguson, a really respected pastor, Discovering God's Will. And then a couple sermons and teachings, uh, knowing God's will, R.C. Sproul, Ligonier.com. That's an excellent website. There's a whole bunch of free stuff there to listen to. I trust whatever's on that web. He's just super solid. He did a little teaching series on knowing God's will. I listened to it this week. It was super helpful. And then John Piper has a sermon called What is the Will of God and How Do We Know It on DesiringGod.com. Very helpful on Romans 2, 12, verses 1 through 2. Any questions before we end? Any questions at all? I know I just went warp speed there. Elaine. Ooh, wow, Paul. Still got the quickness. It's a comment. Yeah. Um, of several years back when we were trying to decide whether or not to go back to China after being there for seven years. Um, we were having dinner with Gary Levi, who some of y'all know, and we mm-hmm. were debating, you know, what is God's will? What are we supposed to do? We're just not sure. And Gary, in his sweet way, said, Elaine, you just pray 
you talk to people you know, you make that decision, and you're in God's will. Amen. And that was so encouraging to us that, that yeah. I still remember it. So. Yep. Amen. Amen. And here's the beauty about trusting in God's sovereignty. Let's say I pray, and let's say I talk to wise, trusted people, but because we're still, you know, we're fallible, let's say I got it wrong, and all the wise people in my world got it wrong, and I make a bad decision, and I go to Chicago. Sorry, Dave, David Baum. I'm sorry. I keep using Chicago as a bad example. But God is still sovereign, right? In his kind and good providence, he works all things together. Even my less than optimal decisions for his good and our glory. So I need not be stagnated by self-absorption for everything to be awesome. And I just need to make a decision to go, which is exactly what you said there. Amen. Amen. Any other comments, questions? Going once, going twice. Okay, if this is true, should we not be bolder people? Should we not be more decisive and courageous because God is sovereign and good? Therefore, what can man do to me? Go home tonight and read Psalm 46, which was one of Luther's great inspirations during the Reformation when he was just buffeted on every side by trial and difficulty. What is God's will for my life, Luther? I'm sure asked many times as he's being persecuted. Psalm 46, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth be removed, though my decision may be stupid when I thought it was right. God is in control for my good. He's given me resources and means. So I'm going to wrestle with them and make a decision to the glory of God. All right, let me pray, and we'll, uh, we'll conclude, and I'll stick around if you have any questions. Father, thank you for these friends. Thank you for their patience. Thanks for the great questions. Pray, Lord, that you would make us a, a people that rest in your sovereign will. But our rest would not produce a fatalism or a laziness in us, but it, it would produce a, a boldness and a confidence and a joy that what can man do to me Though the mountains be moved into the midst of the sea, you are our dwelling place. What do we have to fear? God, work that into my anxious heart, Lord. And Father, give us the strength to mortify and and, and fight against our narcissism. And Lord, help us be a people that are marked by making wise and courageous and God-glorifying decisions for the good of your name and for the joy of your people. I pray that you do these things. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, enjoyed it, folks. We'll see you Sunday.